Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined now by Joseph Kane, Customer Success Manager at Open Sky. Joseph, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Carol. And um, Joseph, Open Sky, what is Open Sky? So OpenSky Data Systems is a GovTech digital transformation specialist and IT consultancy solutions company that provide a suite of solutions to public and private sector organizations in Ireland and the UK. So we're Microsoft Dynamics specialists. We provide a suite of low-code automation solutions. We offer bespoke software development and provide managed support services. We've worked with the likes of the RTB, the Royal Tenancies Board, and Board Polana, and a, a number of other local authorities in Ireland. I myself okay. work with local authorities on OpenSky's CBL digital solution, which is a choice-based letting solutions. This is a solution that can save time and effort for both councils and users alike. Very good. Uh, GovTech, that, that seems to be the, the latest, um, you know, we, we've gone to the point of uh, naming all of these things like PropTech, Construction Tech has been abbreviated down to ContEch. GovTech is a particularly interesting one because there's a huge crossover between a lot of the GovTech and what we're now seeing emerging as smart city solutions and local government solutions. Um, so this is an interesting one to touch base on. But in terms of, um, and, and you've mentioned there, a number of your clients that would be of relevance to this, to this call today uh, and to the property and construction industries. But let's focus on what you mentioned there about the choice-based lettings. Um, is this something that you do for local authorities or would it be more through approved housing bodies or um, would it ever be to private estate and letting agents? It's currently available for local authorities and it is built specifically for our local authorities. So we originally built a solution for a local authority and that solution then we continue to amend the solution, build a solution around the local authority's needs. Um, so just to kind of touch on the CBL scheme as well, just to give a little bit of background about that, and then I can talk about the solution. The yes. CBL is a method that can be used for the allocation of social housing. So available social housing is let, has been openly advertised and allowing qualified applicants to bid for or register an interest. So rather than waiting around for the local authority to make an offer, the CBL scheme involves applicants having to respond to adverts and bid for dwellings. And so this is part of the Rebuilding Ireland Action Plan for Housing and Homelessness. So, so OpenSky built a solution around this. So uh, it, it was basically a specific solution for Irish local authorities, which supports the CBL scheme to promote choice, increase engagements, and improve transparency for housing applicants. So the solution takes the existing CBL screen and creates a platform where housing applicants can register their interest through their device. Councils can add and remove properties to the CBL scheme with ease. And in the background, the administration portal allows control over the site's operational needs, saving time, which allows councils really to value add, more value-add tasks, as opposed to spending their time constantly dealing with the amount of actual lessons. Okay, and but um, I appreciate that this um, this is actioning one of the one of the um, 
the aspirations that were set out under rebuilding Ireland. But how does it work side by side? So say, for example, if we take any local authority, how does it work in relation to the housing list and priority? Because priority on the housing list is such a contentious item. Um, you know, where does this choice-based lettings fit alongside the existing lists and, and the priorities of those? So once the council decides they're going, to, they're going to go ahead with choice-based lettings, the Open Sky Solution, basically what we will do is we will feed their database into, into the front end and that will be an offering as a solution. Um, is it, the council has the ability then in the background to do their administration from their perspective and that's within the council's own uh, working actions. What the solution here is, is really doing is, is saving the council a vast amount of time, but not only that, saving the user the vast amount of time of actually having to, let's say, previous scenario, they would have to go to their local council office, register an interest in a property. Um, and then, you know what I mean, there may be one or two properties that they see that are available for their means. This solution allows them to see all of them that follow into their criteria. So they fill out a list of their specific criteria, how many bedrooms and whatnot that they need. And then they see those properties. They'll also be able to see based on a list where the property is. So if there's a property that wouldn't necessarily fall into their categorization, they may see it. So I think of a lot of these property websites that are already out there is sometimes you can be looking for a letting and see something and go, that works for me. Because now I can see in relative relativity to the school my children go to and relativity to the amenities that I need, this is actually a better solution. Whereas in the old terms of heading down to the council office and then, you know, registering your interests and falling through the forums and whatnot, that might not have been available. So it's taking vast amounts of work away from the council in the sense of the ad, the ad hoc admin duties and taking the work away from the users, which allows them to log in 24-7. They can log in there whatever time suits them and they can register their interest. Um, so that's where it falls in. Again, there's the own council's inner workings uh, and decision-making and whatnot, but it's a solution that allows them to take a lot of administration away from their staff so they can focus on some something more value-add. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can absolutely see the benefit of it. And I'm trying to reconcile how this would fit in terms of the process that's there at the moment. So um, say, for example, if you have a number of parties might look at an available property and might register their interest in that, um, is there some going back to, again, as I mentioned earlier, the, the position on housing lists? So, for example, local authorities... Um, tend to work in order of priority, but also in order um, of the length of time that people have been on housing lists, which in the past meant that maybe somebody who was higher up in the list might have gotten um, an offer of a property that was slightly less suitable for them than it might have been for another family, purely because of their position on the list. So how does this fit within kind of the existing system to make sure that I, I can see that it would be a better fit to have the right property um, maybe going to the right tenants. But in terms of people who've been on the housing list the longest, how does it reconcile that? So if, if, if a specific, let's say a specific client is on the housing list a considerable amount of time, they're going to see the volume of houses that have been selected from them based on the criteria that they've registered within the system. But not only that is, is if, they, if those houses or those properties are not suitable, they can turn those over in quicker length of time. Whereas in the old traditional method, they had to register, you know, register them not, then another batch were pulled and so forth, and they were made available to them. And the whole process was considerably slower. And that time is really just adding to that time that they've been 
on that list in the sense that if there's a, a specific product and it also lets the client as well make more informed decisions because they're able to see more because the listing has got more way more information involved in it it can have photos it can have specific uh, living needs that would be listed within that if it's um, disabled services what have you they're all listed within that now i'm not saying that the previous method didn't have that but it's the time in which it takes to process that which is it is is incumbent in the overall turnaround okay it's really heartening to see the local authorities embracing technology and um you know they've gotten a little bit of flack and and uh, you know I, i've often been um critical myself of maybe the rate of adoption across a number of government services in ireland but actually what we see at a local authority level is that there are some local authorities that emerge as being exceptionally proactive, um, not just at embracing technology, but, you know, even finding innovative solutions to things that, that don't have a heavy reliance on technology. Um, at the moment, are you working across, would, would it be a high number of local authorities in Ireland? Yeah, so at the moment we're working with a number of local authorities and again then we're making this available to any local authorities who are interested. We found that citizens have a, a quite an appetite for automation in the sense of this. So we said 77% of Irish citizens believe automation would enhance the quality of service within the public sector. And of that, 56% of respondents said they would prefer to communicate with the public sector via app or web. So this is the time now to start developing solutions that make to bring that into into play. So if customers are required, if, sorry, if clients are requiring to be able to engage with their, their local authority, and this means this is a solution that allows them to do that. And this is a solution that continues and continues to change and evolve. We've brought in services like the SMS service, which uh, notifies the clients of availability via SMS. We've brought in the email solution. And then on the council side, we brought in Power BI reporting, um, much more bespoke reporting, because this was a, a a pain point of the councils in regards to reporting on these figures. Uh, I, I don't, I can't speak for a council. I don't work for council, but I can definitely say that reporting is one of those things that is a pain point to right across the gamut of council services that are provided. Big data, the amount of data that needs to be that needs to be trolled through, and that data as analysis that provides answers to specific challenges. So having that in a in a form whereby they can present, um, they can analyze, and then they can solve challenges they're going to face day to day. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting one in terms of the reporting, because, you know, maybe people who aren't involved in the public sector may, might not be aware, but actually there isn't uh, or there hasn't previously been one software or one dashboard or one platform that, um, you know, one local authority is using. They tend to be working different departments off a number of different uh, platforms. So actually that's caused a real issue in terms of reporting and in terms of internal communications as well. So we know over the last five and six years, um, local authorities have been really making a huge push towards kind of a more unified uh, method of, of internal communications that could then be made accessible in terms of their external communications or to service users. That's a really important one. So in terms of reporting, it doesn't surprise me to hear that that's, that's a really big feature. But actually, what does surprise me is um, those stats you read out in terms of the citizen um, appetite for automation, because 77% is a huge, that's a huge number of our, of our citizens. Um, you know, is that recent data? Is that data maybe that we have before the pandemic? 
It's actually very recent data. Um, I'd say if we were to pull that now before the pandemic, and I haven't actually got those figures, but I'm thinking that we would see that drop off a little bit in the sense mm -hmm. that we've really seen a change in the times. Um, people who would have probably avoided using uh, web services and whatnot and would try to do things traditionally were just forced into a situation whereby they had to use the web services and this is the only way and the only means towards getting results. Um, there's two sides to that. Of course, there are people who want to continually do, do the traditional method and most of the councils are making that available to them or maybe making a service within the council office whereby they can use with assistance the IT solution. Um, that, is, that as well as the saying that, that there is a considerable um, investment in, in going forward in, in education um, and enablement towards those IT services and getting the best from them from the councils and the local authorities. Yeah, it would be interesting to compare the figures, say, in terms of citizen appetite prior to the pandemic and what we're experiencing now. But you touched on something really important there as well. You know, in the past, I think the councils were very concerned about taking about becoming overly automated because the banks, when they made such a move over the past decade, would have come in for some criticism. But also there was... Um, you know, almost a danger of digital lockout for citizens who either opted not to engage digitally or perhaps didn't have the skills or the devices um, or for, for any number of reasons chose not to engage digitally. So digital lockout was a very real fear that the local authorities have had. However, I think since the pandemic, that's certainly changed. Um, so it's wonderful to see that citizens have changed alongside of it. Um, and in terms of 56% of citizens choosing that they would prefer to engage online. I think that's really telling because in a way, it almost gives the green light for local authorities to invest in, in technology, to really look at how they can streamline communications. Um, so is it, in your opinion, and I suppose in your experience, are you seeing local authorities make the shift to match citizens' appetites? Absolutely, yeah. There's certainly the interest is there, as I said. The interest is there on the council side as well. I think one of the big changes that's happened as well is, is making user-friendly portals, making it a very user-friendly experience. I think if, if we're to log into something that's very complicated and convoluted, what's the point of logging back out and going, I'm going to just go down to the council tomorrow and do it myself? Um, it's much easier. What are, the real drive here has been creating user-friendly portal. That's something we strive to do within the CBL, the creation of the choice-based lettings, um, was to create a very user-friendly uh, portal for both the councils and the and the users. So as well as on the back end, it was simplified as as, as much as it needed to be, and then it got complicated as, as the task required. But on the user side, it's simple. They log in. It's very visual. They can see what they require. They follow the links. They fill in the information, and then they can see the listings. They can express interest. It works like a shopping cart. They add the the uh, properties are interested in, they can check out and then they get the notifications. So simple, straightforward, easy to do. And as I said, we're kind of like a one-stop shop, 24 hours. Uh, I think that's that's something that the councils want to see. Um, it's something that OpenSky are very aware of. User, uh, easy user-friendly friendly portals as opposed to complicated. I suppose if we go back, and we might have to go back a little bit further, but things online were cumbersome, complicated, um, and there nearly always was an element of a form to be completed, irregardless of going through whatever it was. Um, but yeah, that, that's been a big strive. 
That, yeah, that's that's um, to me, I can see that this is happening at a time, um, you know, and, and I'm sure your service was um, in place prior to the pandemic. But really, it's something that's fulfilling a need at this time. But I think it's particularly interesting seeing the changing role of approved housing bodies in working with local authorities to house people from the housing list. And they're doing it in um you know, dare I say, a much more efficient way, um, not just in terms of dealing with the list, but actually in terms of delivering housing. Um, so from that point of view, it seems that the choice-based lettings would be a really good fit to work um, maybe where local authorities are working with approved housing bodies to go through the list, also to feed into demand. You know, at the at the moment, you know, or, or certainly previously, in terms of delivering social housing, there was such a lag um, and it was taking so long to deliver social housing that there was definitely a mismatch by the time that housing was delivered as to maybe what the needs were in a particular area, whether it was for family homes or one bed apartments. It seems that by using technology like this, actually, this could be a very uh, empirical approach to understanding the demand for not just housing in terms of numbers, but the type of housing, the number of bedrooms, proximity to schools, things like that. I mean, is there... Um, you know, is, is that facility available through the choice-based letting scheme? Yeah, so for example, in the reporting side of it, that's what I briefly touched on that because, again, that, that is one of those things where you go down a rabbit hole, reporting's complicated or whatever. But certainly, there's a pull on, on a report that they can pull and see the most sought-after type of house. In other words, the average most sought-after type of house. And then that gives them information in regards to what's needed in a specific area. That might not be the case in every single county, but certain counties will develop trends where they need a specific type of house based on the the size of the area, the average size of family, and so forth. So they're, they're all metrics that are available and all stored, that's all kept within the CBL solution. And then they can use, as I said, Power BI. Um, if they need a bespoke report, we can work with them on that. But we, we can help them develop the reports and use those reports and get the data they need to, out of the solution. Um, just to touch on something I didn't touch on earlier on um, is the refusal rate. Um, we engage with one one council or all our councils, but one council specifically had provided us some data back on on how the, uh, the program had worked for them. And they reported a reduction in refusal rate from an average of 40% refusal rate down to 15 over over an e- one year Excellent. And so, that's, so that's another a- that's another really contentious point, though. I think um, people are generally annoyed when they hear about such high refusal rates. Um, you know, and it, it, it's a bone of contention, and we know that it, that it's been a problem in the past. So, just by using this system, local authorities are seeing that refusal rate go from forty down to fifteen percent. Yeah, one specific r- local authority replied back to us in regards to the data. They were able to pull a look at this data, analyze their data, and it says it came from forty percent down to fifteen. As well as at the reletting of a property, which is one point that that you know what I mean. In the old system, it could go away. The if it needs to be relet now, um, and that takes, you know, usually a very long length of time. Mm-hmm. It was at 15 weeks for the specific local authority, and it went down to five weeks. So that's a considerable reduction as well. And this is since they started. So they took the data prior to the CBL solution, and then after the CBL solution is rolled out and has has a full year to operate. So these are very. Uh, these are great figures to hear, but as well as that, we want to constantly keep striving to, you know, constantly evolve the system, evolve it with the challenges that come in the future, and we'll be continuing to work with the local authorities to do so. 
That's excellent. I'm so delighted that you touched on the vacancy periods there, because actually, as you were describing the the solution um, throughout the interview, it, it absolutely occurred to me that this is something that should be used to drive down vacancy rates. So it's it's great to see that the data is showing that's actually working because 15 weeks vacancy um, between lettings and turnover for lettings, you know, that that was completely unacceptable. And I I think that sometimes it gets forgotten that um, dealing with existing underused or or, um, uh, not used or, or underused properties is actually the fifth pillar of rebuilding Ireland. And it's one that kind of gets the least amount of attention, yet provides the opportunity for really early wins. So by bringing the va- the vacancy, uh, the time, the, the the vacancy timelines there down from 15 to five weeks is actually one of the really important figures there. So that's an interesting one. Joseph, how long is the system, um, the, CBL, the CBL platform, how long do you roll that out? You know, Carl, I can't give you the exact date on that. Um, I when it says I joined the company, I believe um, it's going back a while. I know that our first go live was with Cork City County Council. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Cork City Council. Um, we also have Cork County as well have CBL systems. So we have a number of other councils as well. We've done works with the exact date. I can't give you today on it. Yeah. Um, it's just not there. I have a, I have a figure in my head. And I don't want to say it and be wrong. But, <laughs> you're, no, you're um, well, really, really, the, and and the purpose, the the reason I that question is because um, it would be really interesting to see what kind of impact this, this can have on housing lists um, over a two to three year period. So I, I think it will be interesting to watch. So we'll certainly stay in touch with you from that point of view and see if we can continue to drive and, and if Open Sky can continue to drive things like reducing periods of vacancy because that's so important and um, keeping that all critical um, refusal rate down because again these are two problem areas for local authorities when dealing with the housing lists again you know one of the things that we'd love to see is maybe greater integration with the approved housing bodies because we know that they've been such a um, a force for driving efficiencies again for local authorities dealing with the housing lists um, but certainly in terms of the delivery of social housing when we know the pandemic has has caused issues in terms of delivery both in 2020 and likely in 2021. Um, it's great to see technology coming in and filling that gap and, and keeping the momentum. So that was Joseph Kane, success uh, customer success manager with Open Sky. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. And it is something that we'll check back in with you um, in the future because the delivery of social housing is so vital right now. We need to take a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Hello and welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter or at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. So I'm now joined by Robert Nolan, Planning and Property Advisor at RW Nolan and Associates. Robert, thank you for being with us today. No problem, Carol. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I'm delighted. Um, Robert, today today I reached out to you because I wanted to discuss a very big topic and I don't know how we're going to squeeze it in in just, uh, in, in just a few short minutes. But um, I'm I'm been following some of the work that your firm has been doing um, in terms of sustainability. And that's definitely a conversation that we want to have today. But perhaps for, for members of our audience who aren't familiar, you might just um, describe the work that uh, you and your team at RW, Nolan and Associates are involved in. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Well, we're, we're chartered planning and um, property consultant. My background would have been originally um, property surveying for for a number of years and then I would have moved on and done a master's in town planning so I would have worked with a few 
very well um, known planning consultants around Dublin. And um, I'm involved into setting up my own company as I always thought there was probably uh, a synergy between planning and surveying. So I suppose back in 2015, I would have set up uh, RW Nolan Associates. Um, so largely we kind of bring property and planning together. Um, it was something that I, you know, uh, hasn't isn't hugely common over here. You're either you're either a surveyor or you're you're a planning consultant, and you you very much run run you know in planning consultant you run planning applications and development plan submissions. So I always thought there was scope to do uh, bring the property element into it and to, and not leave it behind. I suppose you know I I went to college, I did it, and I always felt like that the t there was a as I said a synergy between the two. So. So, you know, at the start, we very much kind of uh, were feeling it out with clients and, and, and you know, what our work would have entailed was, you know, initially buying properties, you know, setting up um, almost planning asset strategies for those those properties and and actually developing it out, you know, running planning applications where it need to be and, and, and adding an uplift to those assets. Um, and, you know, our portfolio, you know, kept on growing in terms of we were working with kind of high profile kind of property owners in terms of working kind of development lands and um, rezoning submissions. And um, and then again, we got into social housing element. I, I worked with Dublin Simon for a number of years and doing a large acquisition of about 250 units for them. So that was over a three year period. And then that evolved into kind of doing other work for for another party with Oakley Housing. We kind of brought them sites and, you know, um, did a lot of planning work for them. So. There was various kind of it, it kind of evolved carol you know we kind of did it on a whim at the start we didn't know if the, the two would would work necessarily together but the the feedback has been fantastic and and we've been involved in some really nice schemes and 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 uh, projects so yeah and it, you know we, we've kind of evolved into we're very much in large kind of projects of four or five hundred units now with the strategic housing application process so you know we, we kind of yeah we we're, we like to think of ourselves as a one-shop stop Sure. Very good, very good. Well, I, I can see that that would make sense from a property developer's point of view. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like a better fit. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose, you know, when when property developers come to us, we kind of very much, I call it the 360 health check, where we kind of do a review of the asset before. There is planning, you know, but um, there's also kind of a property angle. I suppose when you're, the way I look at it is pure planning kind of looks at the, policies and the you know the design the height the density i suppose but every property like that or every application like that there is there is an economic and um, residual value that comes into it that needs to be taken into consideration so you know when i was purely doing planning applications for you know for for planning consultants previously when i was working in that field you know sometimes i suppose the loss of a floor wasn't necessarily uh, taken as an economic um issue but I think when you bring the two together you very much understand why 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 the loss of certain elements of development can make a scheme, a scheme not feasible so I think the two work very nicely together and and and, and I, I really enjoy that element of it you know that coming up with a strategy and seeing seeing around corners in terms of seeing angles that people might necessarily see are kind of um, increasing the 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 the, uh, the, um, the value of an asset um, through planning, you know, which is 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 is, is very uh, uh, rewarding. Okay, your farm is based in Dublin. Do you think yeah, that Dublin has shown 
to be shown itself to be progressive in terms of planning policies? Um, yes and no. <laughs> um, very, very diplomatic answer, Robert. <laughs> well, I, you're going to ask me to expand here, so you know. Um, I think you know. I I think we're, you know, we're back where we were. You know, back in the the mid to kind of late nineties in terms of all the same questions are starting to come up, and it and it, I suppose it's a. Uh, it's 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 what happens when you know growth happens, I suppose. But we're starting to hear all like if you if you produced a, a newspaper or the property section back in the nineteen ninety six, you'd probably see density, high rise, public transport, suburban sprawl, you know, leapfrogging all, all these things that are are very much discussion points at the moment. Um, you know, Dublin City is a, a fantastic city. Um, but we're, I think we're in a bit of a crossroads in terms of where we're going height-wise, um, also density-wise. And, uh, and, you know, the bottom line is we're evolving. Um, this is a world, um, uh, shall we say, uh, trend whereby, you know, I think by 2040, uh, just 70% of people will live in urban areas. Um, and, and you... You know, when you look at Brexit and you look at what's happening in America, it, it is showing that 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 rural areas is, and particularly the young population want to be in those urban centres. And I think um, we're Ireland's population in the, by 2040 is going to grow by a million people. So we really need to put those people in the right places where we can use services and we can, you know, I know you're from from a farming background, but I don't think. And necessarily, we can keep going down our one-off housing route because it's not—it's not serving the country well. It's—it's not—it's not making towns sustainable in terms of you know, if you go to France, for instance, if you go into the rural areas, you know, most of the farming population live in those little towns, and they're not allowed. The suburban sprawl is non-existent. So you know, but the problem is, we look at—we have a—you know—we have a national planning framework. You know, is out of sync with with some elements of what people in, want. You know, when when you say it's out of sync, what do you mean? Because um, you know, you refer to some of these villages in in France, and it would be similar in Spain. Yeah. Um, and I observe the same thing you do, but I think I come to the, perhaps a different conclusion, and that is, you know, it's certainly um across northern Spain when you're walking through villages, you see um, you know farm worker farmers um would actually cycle out with their equipment attached to the bike yeah. uh, you know because they're living in the town the original farmhouse is falling to rack and ruin you can see that and one of the things we saw i was over gosh maybe uh years seven eight nine years ago now at this stage uh doing a documentary about these abandoned villages across northern spain and part of that um was was driven by you know maybe there wasn't the vitality in the rural mm. areas that there ought to be and I'm not sure it's as simple as put everybody into the town centres and city centres but I, I appreciate that that's not the, the that that's not the predominant planning view um but it's something that I really struggle with actually you know um it, it particularly like I'm I'm really heartened uh by but I'm an optimist I'm very heartened by the hub and spoke model of co-working spaces that's encouraging people not necessarily to work from home but being able to work remotely as in from mm. innovation hubs up and down 
you know, the, the west of Ireland as opposed to having to commute into Galway City or Limerick City or Dublin mm. City. Um, am I am I overly optimistic here? Am I am I missing the bigger picture, Robert? No, look, I I I think we were we were probably evolving to that kind of four day or three day week, you know, in the office and then two days remotely. And and you know, I think you have you know you have to build it and they'll come. I think I, I, there is a strong argument that you create strong hubs in villages and towns, um, and that people will want to live in those things. But in terms of you know, I'm dealing with some sites at the moment, you know, which are in the greater Dublin area, but in small struggling uh, towns that have probably lost their, their their retail capacity to stronger, you know, bigger centres and they're struggling. And you're, you're, you're wondering, because at the end of the day, a population changes a town, you know, it creates support for, you know, your, your post office, your retail. But like if you drive through a lot of small towns in Ireland, you know, they're, they're desolate, they're, their pubs are gone post office is shut there you know and there is that fine line where you're trying to bring life back into those communities and and um, bringing up because the population will train change those towns if they're servicing those um if they're using those services so you know uh, but i uh, and if you actually sorry going back to my my planning days in college if you actually look at the breakdown of the cost and, and the environmental cost to a one and a half house compared to a house using electric you know uh, um, uh, sewerage system within a town centre, and 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 you know the cost is huge in terms of that one-off house, and they're they're invisible costs that you and me don't see. They're you know they're they're the road to get there. They're the there's the sewerage tanks that maybe that's over that um the septic tank that's polluting the local vi- or the local river. You know there's the electrical cables. There's the you know the journey time in and out of the towns. There's you know all these things that kind of. Um, create a really non-sustainable housing stru- uh, kind of structure, really. Yeah, and actually, that's that's one of the things that I want to talk to you about today because I accept that my view is not where we need to be going in terms of planning what's best for the country. It's certainly not what I would interpret as being laid out in the national planning framework. And you know, one of the things I mentioned to you before um, we came on air is that. Through PropTech Ireland, there's there's a global movement um, called PropTech for Good, and you know we have signed up uh, through PropTech Ireland to be ambassadors for for um, helping the the planning, construction, and property industries in Ireland work towards achieving the 17 sustainable development goals as set out by the UN. And when you read them, they you know. They absolutely make sense. There's nothing there that you say, no, I, I wouldn't be supportive of this. You know, absolutely, we want to help end poverty. You know, we want zero hunger is absolutely mm-hmm. what we should be striving for, Um, you know, in, in terms of uh, well-being. And, and that feeds into our built environment. Um, And one of the really important things for me that I see is uh, industry innovation and infrastructure, because I think that's been really lacking in Ireland. And I think there's huge intersections between um, an efficient planning system um, that promotes viable development and yeah. then sustainable development. Um, and one of the things that we've seen already, and in fact, we've spoken about here in the show previously, is that um, at the moment, the sustainability agenda is being driven from where I can see it. Uh, it's been driven um, by some state um, agencies through whether smart city initiatives, we're certainly seeing it through uh, the prop tech sector, uh, but the buyers of those, so the people who are putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, 
they are definitely uh, the REITs and other bodies whose financing depends on this. So yes. they have to show not just um, sustainable aspirations. They need to actually set out what the roadmap they're doing to to achieve this because we know the built environment is responsible for nearly 40% of carbon emissions. So we know there's a big role that this industry has to play. Um, maybe what we don't know is how it just it feels like such a big conversation and like every big conversation it's difficult to start but there's so many you know there's so many elements to it in terms of uh you know for example i've always said that you know and i i was kind of hoping it would be pushed through in the last budget if it you know is the metro in terms of delivering that to dublin and, and um because it's such a port, an important piece of infrastructure in many ways and and we kind of grapple with, you know, we, we're looking at, we have to provide, what, 33 to 36,000 um, units, and we're only pro- providing 18,000 per annum at the moment, and it's not going to be great. I think next year they're looking at um, just under, sorry, the figures here, but I think it's under, I sorry, 16 and it's 18 next year. So we're well below where we need to be in terms of delivering, um, you know, units. And, 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 and the problem is, you know, this is a kind of key time, you know, we're going to see mass unemployment in terms of what's happened in COVID and, you know, big public infrastructure um, projects like this are so, because they're, they're, they're far reaching because, you know, what would happen here is because Dublin is so, uh, like it's a small city and we have these very much, um, you know, defined kind of uh, zoned areas. But if we were to provide something like, a metro, we can very much disperse the land values and start putting kind of medium to higher density zones in the suburbs where people, you know, can, you know, have a metro where they can travel relatively quickly into the city and they don't need to be in this, in, in those locations. And I always have said it's a prime opportunity to kind of spread land values and reduce that, you know, congested, you know, um, 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 kind of management of, of those of those areas where, you know, for example, the Lewis is very much, you know, dispersed land values a little bit where, but you see it because, you know, land values along the Lewis and the Dart lines are far greater than they are in other areas of Dublin. And 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 if you did the same with the Metro, that would very much help distribute, you know, that are kind of hopefully relieve those, those those high land values and those high unit values. Um, can and that, and can that be... Yeah, sorry to interrupt there, Rob, but can that be achieved through bus connects? Do you think? Yeah, there's the argument where they say, you know, bu- you know, bus buses actually serve the Irish or the well, particularly the, the Irish city better than a than a um, than a rail network would or a metro because it can get into all those residential areas. That unfortunately, our that our planning system has been a suburban sprawl system, so it's very hard to service through a. A metro, but at the same time, you know, the metro is also about linking that, making that link to the airport and getting, you know, so there's a tourist play, there's an economic play, there's, you know, there, there's a lot that goes with that. And um, okay, but um, there's also, I mean, you're talking about uh, improved, um, improved transport infrastructure, which is crucial. Um, yeah. That requires unlocking land, and yeah. if the premise for doing this is that we can promote higher density residential. We know what happens when we try to, to when we try to uh, increase the uh, d- densities because it inevitably means increasing heights, and then yep. we inevitably get pushback from the communities. Um, you know, through public consultation, the reality is we all want 
everybody to be housed. We all want everybody to be housed affordably. Mm. Nobody wants to give up their view to make it happen. Yeah, and and that's, you know, I suppose you probably saw Johnny Rowan's um, application for 45 stories in the docs at the moment. And and I suppose we, we are in that 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 period of, you know, where as a, we this conversation, even when we were back in college, you know, 15 years ago, this was very hot topic in terms of it, Dublin, you know, you'll have uh, various kind of, like, I suppose, Karen Cuff would be, a, we're a low-rise city and that we're a Georgian city and the high-rise doesn't necessarily belong here. But, you know, I, I remember being in London as a child and, and that London was not terribly high-rise up until 15, 20 years ago. And London is a Victorian Georgian city. And it's very much... You know, the thing that I, when I drive around Dublin at the moment is that high rise in the right places and Dublin City Council are right in terms of they hi- highlighted the areas where it can go in the, the Docklands down in, in uh, Houston Quarter and various other um, areas. And, and um, but, you know, sometimes it, quality of design, I think, and I kind of that really sometimes I feel like that that pu- our public planners haven't challenged the private private developer in Dublin too much. When you drive down the docks, it is a very, it's a six to, story, six to seven story. It can be a little bit mundane when you look at it in terms of it doesn't really challenge the eye. And I think the, my worrying part is if we go high, I think the, the, there's, there's an uncomfortable lack of context there when we go high because there isn't that height at the moment. So we're in that uncomfortable phase of, of where we're, we're, we're low rise, and we're trying to go medium to high. And I, I, I think, you know, um, I think private developers need to be pushed on design. I, I think okay. some of the stuff that's been built doesn't, you know, you go to London and, and uh, New York and it's, you know, some of the la- some of the landmark buildings are, are, are amazing. Or Bilbao, you go there, which is a relatively new city in terms of height. And there's some very quirky designs. And I think we can be very conservative here. We, we, we're low rise and we try and maximize our floor plate, plates um, through, through very bulky, large bulky floor plates when you go down the docks. And, um, and some of the building, look, you know, there's, there, there's some buildings like Capital Dock have been built and, and they're, they're pushing the boundaries a little bit. But, you know, the U2 tower was previously there and, and was a lot more groundbreaking than what's, what is there now. So mm-hmm. I think planners need to be challenged both privately and, and publicly. Do you think there's an appetite for change? And I, I'm conscious that we're we're uh, coming close to our time here, but you know the fact that we're having this conversation, and I know um, certainly two years ago, you know this show was dominated, particularly when Owen Murphy was housing minister. Uh, it was dominated by um, this conversation about heights, and I, I think you've made a really good point there that actually, you know, the height is only one aspect of this and that design maybe hasn't featured. And one of the, the, I'm not an urban planner, but one of the things that I would feel quite strongly about is that um, a city is a a living organism. So um, I I don't think it should be preserved. There are elements that you want to see preserved historically. However, I think that the face of a city should change over time. The skyline should change over time. And that's something that I, I, you know, I, I can see there's just fractions across um, Dublin planners about this. I, I don't think that they're in agreement at all. I think there's some that are very proactive and maybe some that are very much rooted in the traditional. And I see merit in both. However, 
I think for the for the strength of a city and for the vitality, we have to allow it to evolve into the next into the next iteration of what it's going to be. The skyline yeah. has to be allowed to evolve. I think just to, to quickly, you know, I think there's a little bit of frustration there. You know, private developers are pushing, trying to push the envelope in terms of they've been given those ministerial guidelines to push on with the heights. And I suppose, you know, it kind of a little bit jumped the gun a little bit because, you know, development plans and Dublin City Council have to implement their development plan. And these ministerial guidelines go outside those development plans. So there's a bit of frustration there because they have to follow that line. Like a prime example would be, you know, the uh, Salesforce building in the Docklands and that, that, that saga that's been going on. And you can kind of see where the private developers coming from trying to push the envelope and, and maximize the, you know, the potential of that building and, and, and what the user wants. But then you got to understand and um, because that SDS or SDSZ will be compromised and is dead once that permission goes over the, the, um, the limitations set by the strategic development zone. So there, I, I understand where both parties are coming from and it's very frustrating. And, you know, from other, you know, other strategic development zones in Cherrywood and Pool Bag, and I know that the same thing's going to happen there, that they'll want to push the densities because they're, they're considered too low and that, that they, you know, they need higher, higher buildings can be accommodated in those locations. So, I sometimes think there's a bit of a disconnect and, 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 and not a disconnect, but, you know, I can entirely see their, you know, they have to implement their development plan and these ministerial guidelines have kind of pushed out, pushed outside that development plan. And I, and I suppose there's frustration on both parties, I, I would imagine. Um, but you're right. Look, we have to, you know, if we're going to accommodate a million people, um, you know, uh, we can do medium density, we can do high density, you know, for example, you know, Rat Mines and, and Portobello and, and all those areas are, you know, they're hot, medium density. They, the amount of people that they fit into those areas. But, you know, in, in the core areas, we sh- you know, of the Dublin Docklands and, and they, you know, they can accommodate more. And, and the impact on that, on the, on the uh, Georgian core is, it isn't hugely um, negative in those locations. Um, but the problem is we're tippy-toeing in height and, and instead of just, you know, take the plaster off instead of take it, you know, doing yeah. it slowly. And I, and I think we're being overly conservative. And I think probably, you know, when you look at our past, Liberty Hall might be an example of where we're, we're carrying the scars and the confidence from buildings like that, that we didn't necessarily don't pride ourselves in. And, and um, but, you know, like I'd be... Treasury Holdings have, have done some very good buildings and, and, and I know it's, you know, some of the Google buildings, some of the ultra virtual build, buildings they've done. And, and I just think sometimes we could, we could, we could have a little bit more confidence in our design and, and have a bit of a German kind of element to it in terms of where they very much pull, push the envelope in design and, and be a bit more risky. I think we've a very, you know, um, conservative skyline, shall we say. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting when you talk about the creativity and look, this is something that I, I, I would love if we had more time even to discuss this. Um, but the reality is, I think sometimes we overlook the fact that we have some some amazing expertise in Ireland, some amazing expertise in terms of creative design and some amazing expertise in terms of delivery. 
Um, but unfortunately, most of the expertise gets delivered, uh, the most of the creative expertise gets delivered outside of Ireland, which is a source of frustration for the entire industry. But again, that almost feels like a larger conversation for another day. So we'll have to leave it there for now. That was Robert Nolan, Planning and Property Advisor at RW Nolan and Associates. Thank you again, Robert, for joining us on the show today. We need to take another quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Now, welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. So now I'm joined by Keen O'Flaherty, CEO of SafeCility. Keen, you're very welcome today. Thanks, Carol. Great to see you. Um, and I'm delighted to, to have you here today. Um, obviously, we take a huge interest in prop tech and smart city solutions that we see coming on, and especially those that are that are deemed um, and catering to emergency services and, and emergency solutions. So you might just talk to us and tell people about SafeCility and what the, the core offering is. Sure. So SafeCility sits in uh, solu- solutions that are addressing the estate owner or the you know estate manager's legal obligations to keep building tenants safe uh, during an emergency. So like life safety systems that we'd all be familiar with, like fire alarms, emergency lighting, uh, sprinkler systems, and as well as that, uh, other safety like uh, gas and smoke detection or Legionella and water. So when we were starting out developing the startup, what we were really curious about is how much of this process remains highly manual. I think you'd recognize this looking at how many other businesses have have really transitioned into digital first. Property remains one of the sort of really low-hanging fruits in digitization. Um, So hardware that automates the uh, legally required testing, and we've developed a cloud engine that manages legal compliance. So an estate manager with a footprint across Europe can use our software to handle all of the testing and inspection routines for millions of properties, if that's what they have, and see it all there on the front end in their SafeCility application. Very good. Um, you're still at the stage that could be classified as a startup, um, you know, really within the first few years. So where have um, where have your early customers come from? I mean, are, do you tend to deal with asset managers directly or, or sorry, landlords directly? Is it asset managers? <laughs> Yeah, it's it, in the first instance, we've seen real traction from actual asset managers within large estates. So we've done work in Ireland here with Limerick City Council um, and Smart Dublin. And on top of that, we've had quite a lot of interest in the UK from housing authorities um, that manage you know, tens of thousands of properties uh, across quite large footprints. So we've worked with Vivid Homes in the UK, uh, Halton Housing, uh, Barcud, which is formerly Midwales Housing. Um, to name but a few, and they have the genuine challenge of, of an asset portfolio of 10,000 10, maybe units across an entire county uh, and teams that are going door to door to these blocks inspecting on a quarterly basis. And when they finish, they go right back to the start. So it's an extraordinary expense being incurred for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Keen, what was your background? Were you, were you in the property industry yourself? I used to work in lighting. Um, oddly enough, we spent a lot of time on LED lighting and energy efficiency. Um, but the 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 real attraction for me was to try and deliver something that became, you know, a, a reliable service for the customers. Um, we were delivering products solely at the time, and I think there was a real opportunity. Uh, we realized with emergency lighting, for example, when you know somebody is is installing energy efficiency lighting, we're walking out the door and somebody is coming straight in to sign a contract to maintain the testing and legal obligations uh, for the next five years. So 
once technology can do that, uh, there's no reason for that to be done uh, in person. You know, the quality of the, the inspection and the quality of the reporting goes away up. And in terms of, look, I, I think um, that's something that was overly manual and was, and was considered very burdensome by the industry. But in terms of compliance, working across the Ireland and the UK, have there been many differences there in terms of compliance? I think there's. I think there was a real shift after the fire in Grenfell Tower. I think we'll all recognise that as the the final act of the previous regulatory philosophy. Um, so while it's still a very emerging replacement to to Grenfell, it's clear that there is far higher uh, expectations around performance. We're going to have named duty holders in the law in the UK, uh, and I think we're seeing a lot of Irish behaviours. In many senses, we're quite good at compliance in our own right, uh, and in some practices would have been more uh, advanced than, say, uh, what we'd have seen in the UK. But I think what's going to be increasingly likely is that a, a named officer in these agencies is going to be in charge of making sure that tenants or customers or uh, occupants of buildings are safe. And to do that, they have to do their inspections under the law. And having a named person is a real change uh, philosophically, it's always been possible to put things in the passive voice. You know, a fire has happened or an emergency took place. Now, increasingly, a named officer means that, you know, Mr. X is responsible for the failure to, to prevent the loss of life uh, in, this, in this emergency. And I think the next 10 years are potentially a, an enormous shift in, in investment in this space uh, to make buildings safer. But then how much of an investment needs to happen? Because what you're talking about there, you're right, when you attach a name to it and personal responsibility, you know, it, it, it takes on another dimension altogether. And of course it shouldn't, but it does. Mm. That's just human does, nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but for firms in Ireland, so say, for example, uh, pro, uh, property managers, you know, who might be dealing with, you know, 500 units, what will this mean for them? Yeah, I think I think if they were to follow their traditional practices, the budget for compliance and inspection is going to balloon. Um, I think we probably can all appreciate that a regulator is going to continue regulating, uh, irrespective of the cost of it. And, and it's not always an argument they're, they're responsive to. Um, what we're seeing is, is that our position, you know, we deliver technology and it does require an investment, but over five years, it cuts the cost in half. So, you know, against a backdrop of ballooning regs and ballooning compliance obligations, your only option we see is to make the investment in the technology that's going to limit how much upside cost there is in, in these changes to regulation. So, you know, a client may look at it and say, in year one, we're going to spend, you know, two, two years of our budget. But by the end of year five, you're probably only going to have spent, you know, two and a half years of the five-year budget. So there's a saving there in the long term. And the reg yeah are coming irrespective of how you approach it. I think we're really seeing asset managers who have a very heavily outsourced function, they're really worried because one of the things that's, that's changing is by putting a name inside the company, somebody has to see the paper and information flow. And a lot of the outsourced operators tend not to share that. No malice, it's just easier to get the job done and give you a completed cert. But the people now need to see the data in much more granularity, to see the work being done where it's done and stand over the, the the changes or the upgrades that are done. Yeah, that that's an interesting one. How are you finding the industry? You know, look, I I'm routinely quite critical, maybe about uh, slow adoption of new technologies, but I I think that it's different different uh, when you're talking about a regulatory issue. And one thing I've really seen across 
not so much the construction industry because actually they're quite good at this. They're a heavily regulated industry and they're quite good at it. But actually what I see maybe across the estate agency and, and uh, property manager side that um, there's the fear that comes when an issue is becoming regulated. So, for example, even in terms of uh, when data protection legislation was coming in and cost isn't, isn't the issue, it really is. There's a fear of not getting this right and there's really a willingness to pay any cost to make sure that that, that is right um, as opposed to maybe enabling the team to upskill themselves. So uh, it, it, that, that's something I've seen that it's, it's kind of an anomaly um, that falls outside of the usual rates of tech adoption. So in terms of compliance, um, property, the property services now is very heavy, heavily regulated in Ireland, much more so in Ireland than in the UK in terms of property yeah. managers. Um, yeah. So how have you seen, you know, when, when you go to pitch your services there, is there an awareness about this? No, I, I think in, and the awareness of, of the responsibilities, absolutely. I think in, in terms of the adoption rate, you're right. I mean, property is, is an achingly slow thing. The buildings are going to be there for 20 years and that determines the view of the people fighting fires in the, in the asset or the managing uh, roles that they're in. But when there is a legislative change, you do see a shift in gears. Um, we've we've had to work quite hard at the same time because there's there's a huge uh, onus on us to bring a product that satisfies the customer uh, a worry that they're going to be covered. So when you're changing the rules, you're right, like they're probably less likely to do business as usual and they are likely to spend money to make sure they're doing it right. But the flip side of that is you really have to be sure your product is right and they have to be convinced by it. Uh, so that's been kind of the conversations we're having. And that that comes back to building on standards and, and being able to prove the step-by-step. Step. But I think in general, we're going to see a ballooning adoption in this space. It, there's a huge amount of software out there to, to enable this. But I think from our point of view, you can see networks like um, Vodafone's NBI OT network or perhaps you know local LoRaWAN networks are going to make it extremely affordable for, for people to run the data directly from the building. Uh, and we see the future as that, that integrated, the building reports in itself. Uh, and you pay the money to get that, but you get 20 years of the building reporting on itself, which is a huge, huge saving overall operationally. Do you think that that's something that's valued at the moment? You know, we talk a lot about um, how the the really the value that's yet to be unlocked in a lot of these portfolios is data. But I'm not sure that the the construction or sorry the the property industry in Ireland I'm not sure if they if they're aware of it or if they understand that this has a tangible value yeah I, I think I'd agree with you with that I think I think it's really a struggle there there's always a fire to be fought and it's rarely our fire if you'll pardon the the, oh. the pun and the imagery but but there's you're coming to competing against whatever is on fire in the building in that given day um, and it's rarely the data problem and separately, you know, if, if things are going well, there's very always a resistance to change. It's like, why, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, and trying to get people to jump in in advance is, is very tough. But the value is there uh, in the long term. And we think that the, the changes in how people have to address the safety. And, and you know, we've done a lot of work with Limerick uh, City Council and the fire department down there around safety in, in historic buildings. And I think what's interesting is the education of regulators around the technologies and what they can demand from the buildings will end up ratcheting in the adoption as well. Uh, data isn't just for the property managers, it's also for the regulators. You know, you, you've systems now that will allow you to reveal a certain public facing information around your safety. There's no reason you can't run a safety, uh, 
you can't run a safety rating like you do the BER. There's no reason in the world you can't gather and publish data around an ABC rating for safety in buildings. None yeah. at all. No, that absolutely makes sense. Cian, before we before we let you go, what is the, the key message that you're putting out to building owners and operators for 2021? COVID has made it really important to have low-touch inspections of your buildings. Uh, access is really hard. People are really afraid. You have to digitise now. And investing now, you'll reap the wars for the next 10 years and be well-positioned for the coming regulatory changes as well. Okay, so that's it. Now's the time. Thank you so much Now's for joining time. us. That's right. Keen, that was Keen O'Flaherty, CEO of Safe Facility. Oh my goodness, Keen. Uh, I'm so sorry. Safe Facility. Um, so I'm delighted. The website is? www.safecility.com. Super. Thank you. That's it from us today. Thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. Get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or indeed email the show at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound and show producer Katie Tallon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Tallon, and all the team here. Stay safe.